Good morning and welcome to our worship service of Winkler Berchtaler Mennonite Church for May 30th, 2021. This morning we're going to be talking about the resurrection. So uh, please join us, uh, bring your Bible, we'll be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Glad you could join us. bless you. It's good to have you join us. We are looking forward to a great time of worship and praise together. In spite of COVID, the church and our community remains active. So let's take a look at some of the activities that are taking place in, in our church and in the community. One of the things to note, this is the time of year when camp starts and the Winkler Bible Camp is looking for a cook. So if that's something that you would be interested in and available for, please contact the CAP. Um, we want to um, acknowledge Don and Shar, our missionaries, and uh, please pray for them. We have uh, an expression of sympathy. Tina Bergen passed away on Monday, May 24th. She's his sister-in-law to Tina Schmidt. And may God's peace be with you as a family 
as you uh, grieve the loss of someone in your family. We also want to take note of a summer drive-in concert. Uh, one, in, one, Hope in Canada, uh, one Hope Canada is putting on a, a drive-through or drive-up special FM concert that's at the EMM Church. So, and that is on June 13th at 7 o'clock. So for our call to worship, I'd like to um, call you to Philippians 4, verses 4 to 9. That's Philippians 4, verses 4 to 9. And it's headed to final exhortations. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Would you join me in prayer? Father, in spite of what's happening around us, help us to remember to rejoice in you always. Help us to form and maintain good habits. May we, Lord, not be anxious. May we remain thankful. May we remember our neighbor. Help us to put into practice what you modeled for us. Give us courage to be your salt and light. We stand firmly on your peace. Help us to put into practice what you modeled for us. And Father, I just ask that you be with Don and Shar and all, the, all of our missionaries who live in less protection than we have. Give wisdom and discernment to our leaders. Grant safety to our caregivers. Keep their families safe. Encourage our camp leaders and workers. We praise you and thank you for your faithfulness. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Redeemer, 
Good morning, boys and girls. I'm glad you came to church today. Has your mom or dad planted flowers or maybe a vegetable garden this spring? This is the time of year when we like to plant seeds and watch them grow. Now, I have a few little flower seeds in my hand. I don't know if you can see them or not. They're tiny. What happens to these tiny seeds when they're planted? First, it grows roots. And then a small a small plant starts to come up. It peaks up out of the soil. And if you take good care of it and give it what it needs, like water and sunshine, it will grow into a bigger, healthy plant. And maybe it will look like this. Now, even though seeds are pretty small, they can grow to be beautiful, large plants like this one and many other kinds. It's exciting to see what can grow from a small seed. People grow too. If we are healthy and get what we need, we also grow to be healthy and taller and stronger. And did you know that there's another way that we can grow? It's the same way that Jesus grew. In Luke 2, it tells us how he grew. Verse 40 says, And the child, they're talking about Jesus, grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. And when he was a bit older, in Luke 2, verse 52, it says, So Jesus grew both tall and wise and was loved by God and man. So not only did Jesus grow taller and stronger, but he grew wise. To be wise means not just knowing things, but understanding people and how to solve problems, knowing right from wrong, making good decisions, and knowing how to please God. Now, how did Jesus grow to be so wise? Well, I'm going to tell you a story about him. Every year, Jesus and his parents went to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. And after the celebration was over, they started walking home to Nazareth. Jesus was just 12 years old when this happened. In those days, they had to walk, and Nazareth was a long ways away from Jerusalem. So it took them a long time to walk. Jesus didn't walk with his parents. Maybe he was walking with his friends or his cousins. But after walking for a whole day in the evening, his parents were wondering, where is Jesus? They were wondering where he was and if he was okay. So they started to look for him among their relatives, but they couldn't find him. So... What did they have to do? They had to walk all the way back to Jerusalem to look for him. They were so worried. And after three days, they finally found him. Can you imagine how worried your parents would be if they couldn't find you for three whole days? Well, guess where Jesus was? He was in the temple, the church talking to the teachers of the law, learning from them and discussing hard questions with them. He amazed them with his knowledge and understanding and wisdom. Now, when his parents found him, they asked him why he had stayed there and worried them so much. He said, Didn't didn't you know that I would be here at the temple in my father's house? So Jesus knew that if he wanted to do what God had sent him to do, he would have to spend time learning and growing in wisdom. And as he grew older, he did more things that pleased God. He talked to God, his father, every day, and he did more and more things to help other people. Eventually, he did What God had sent him to do, he died on the cross for us. We know that this plant here can't stay healthy and grow if we would just leave it alone 
and if we don't give it what it needs. Well, we also can't grow in wisdom if we don't work at it. And we can do this by talking to God every day and by reading his word, the Bible. We can learn by talking to other Christians. And we can also ask God to make us wise, and he will do it. In James 1 verse 5, it says, If any of you lacks wisdom, that means if you don't have wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. Another version of this verse says this, If you want to know what God wants you to do, ask him, and he will gladly tell you. For he is always ready to give a generous supply of wisdom to all who ask him. Let's pray together. Dear God, we know what a plant needs in order to grow and be healthy. Help us to remember that we need to keep growing too. Give us wisdom to know how to live for you and how to help others come to know you as well. We want to learn from you by reading the Bible and talking to you every day, just like Jesus did. Thank you for giving us what we need to grow to be more like you. Amen. Good morning. The scripture reading today is from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 to 58, and I'm reading from the NIV. I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Well, here we are, back in 1 Corinthians. Uh, We're going to be looking at the resurrection this morning. And so before we do that, would you bow with me for a word of prayer? Father in heaven, we thank you for this day. We thank you that you've given us life and breath. We thank you, Father, that you have given us the opportunity to preach and to hear the word preached and to sing together and to lift up our voices and give you praise. Father, as we spend this hour worshiping together, and, uh, and everything that has happened already. Father, would you add your blessing? I pray that the church will be built up and lifted up. I pray that you would put out of our minds anything that distracts us from, from thinking your thoughts. And as we think this morning together on the resurrection, I pray that you would, um, that you would clear our minds and help us to think, think clearly and that your spirit would be our teacher and help us to understand. Thank you, Father. For this opportunity, we give you praise. Amen. All right. Back in 1 Corinthians, uh, chapter 15, the second last chapter of this book or letter. Uh, Throughout the letter of 1 Corinthians, Paul has been addressing a number of the difficulties of the Corinthian church. Uh, Difficulties they were having because of a newfound faith. Remember that they did not grow up in Christian homes, as many of us have. Uh, They had no Christian heritage to guide their collective behavior. There was no history of godly men and women to look to uh, for instruction. 
Their parents uh, did not teach them the stories of God's faithfulness. Uh, These people grew up in pagan homes. They learned the ways of idol worship. They were indoctrinated with the worldly views, uh, worldly views that were, that were based on legalism, on sensuality, the pursuit for power, everything that the world strives after. So it's no wonder that this church had troubles. And Paul spent the first 14 chapters of this letter dealing uh, with interpretations of how to live out their Christian life. And when we get to chapter 15, Paul is finished addressing their questions about how to live, and he turns his attention to something that's a little bit more fundamental. The root problem here is not how to live, but what to believe. Paul nails it in chapter 15, verse 12, where he says this, Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Why some were saying this is difficult to say, but cities, uh, the cities of Greece were full of philosophers with new ideas, new ways of thinking, as Paul found out when he visited Athens. And no doubt these new ideas of the day had their influence then as they do now. Clearly there's an underlying doubt that needs to be addressed. So I will invite you to put on your thinking caps and think with me uh, through uh, Paul's explanation and arguments for why the resurrection is true and why it is important for our faith and why it needs to be believed. So all of chapter 15 is focused on correcting this doubt. Paul is not facing off against unbelievers, but he's teaching and correcting believers within the church. And he starts uh, this section by bringing the Corinthians back to the gospel of Jesus that he preached to them at first. The truth about resurrection must be understood and believed. Without it, their faith will fail. So before we get into it, I would just like to share with you the structure of this passage. In the first 11 verses, uh, Paul reminds his readers of the gospel that was preached to them and the gospel that they accepted. Uh, In verses 12 to 19, Paul refutes the idea that there is no resurrection. And then in verses 20 to 49... Paul presents arguments in support of the resurrection. He opens with a truth claim, and then uh, uh, and then he moves on to uh, several arguments that uh, show that the resurrection is true. Then in verses uh, 50 to 58, Paul presents the blessed hope of Jesus' resurrection and the sure hope of resurrection for all who believe. So that's basically the structure, and and I'm I'm going to work my way through that structure. So take your Bibles, if you would, and let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. As I've already said, Paul spent the first 14 chapters addressing questions, lifestyle, behavior, and so on. There were divisions about who baptized who and, and which teacher one should follow, um, he spoke to sexual immorality, lawsuits among believers, marrying and not marrying, idolatry, food offered to idols, headship, the Lord's Supper, spiritual gifts, orderly worship. <laughs> he covered a whole range of stuff. <clears throat> but now Paul needs to address the big problem. What they believe about the resurrection. To tackle this doubt, like I said before, Paul brought them back to the gospel that he preached to them at first. And he reminded them of the eyewitness evidence of Jesus' resurrection. Listen to what he says. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain." For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins 
in accordance with the Scriptures. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And this grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. In other words, this is the gospel that you believed. In the listing, sorry, in listing the number of witnesses of Jesus appearing after the resurrection, Paul emphasized the weight of that evidence. So imagine, if you will, that, say, the Winnipeg Jets won a Stanley, Stanley Cup playoff series in just four games. Imagine that years later, you're in the city of the losing team. And the story that's circulating there is that the Jets actually played pretty poorly. The series went to seven games, and that really they only won by a fluke shot. But then somebody leans over to you and tells you, Hey, I was there. I can tell you exactly what happened. Now, whom would you tend to believe? Here's an eyewitness who can tell you what happened, a person who was there. The weight of an eyewitness account is huge. And in the case of the resurrection, there were over 500 eyewitnesses. And they told the same story. He is risen. Paul reminded them that that is the gospel that was preached to them and the one that they believed. And then he asked the central question. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? It's kind of like saying, uh, no one comes to the Father except through Jesus, and then turning around and saying, there are many roads to God. Both statements can't be true. What Paul does here is, for the sake of discussion, as he follows the logic of the idea that there is no resurrection. And then he explains what that would look like. So, let's go down to verse uh, verse 13 and keep reading. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he, did, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope only in this life, we of all people are most to be pitied. So Paul concluded by pointing out that their faith in Jesus without the resurrection is actually delusional and hopeless. We cannot say that we believe in Jesus and reject the idea of his resurrection. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then he is still a dead man, and he offers no hope to anyone. But, and this is the turning point in the argument, Paul says, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead. He counters the false idea of no resurrection with a truth claim. And Paul declares Jesus to be the giver of life, triumphant over death, and and sovereign over all powers and authorities. Listen to what he says. This is now in verse 20. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by man came death, 
By man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom of God, the, sorry, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Well, in making this truth claim, Paul uses four arguments then to explain why the resurrection is true. And these arguments are from real life experiences. These are, these are uh, arguments that people can connect with. Now, I'll confess right away, there's a lot here that can be said and a lot gone into in this book. Uh, but if I'm going to, in this chapter, but if I'm going to cover the whole chapter, I can't, I can't go too, do, too deep into too many things. Just, I'm just looking at the general argument here. So you may, you may think I'm missing some things, but uh, I, I can't do everything in this one sermon. So let's look at the four arguments that he uses to prove the resurrection. <clears throat> the first argument is right in verse 20, uh, which we just read. And Paul refers to Christ as first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So how is that proof of the resurrection? Well, first fruits is a harvest term. It refers to the first part of the crop harvested. And the term itself actually implies that there is much more harvest to come. So if Christ is the first fruits, then there is a greater harvest to follow. A harvest of those who have fallen asleep or died, which means that the followers of Jesus will be resurrected. If Christ was resurrected and he's the first fruits, we will also be resurrected. The second argument, which we'll read in a moment, uh, Paul argues that the resurrection is true based on a practice with which the Corinthians were familiar. Uh, number three, he argues that the resurrection is true because they are facing persecution. And the fourth one uh, is that he argues for the resurrection from the principles of sowing and reaping. So let's read that portion. 1 Corinthians 15 at verse 26. <clears throat> the last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things under his feet. Uh, now skip to verse 29, and it says, Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought beasts in a, at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. So this second argument, which is in verse 20, stems from, the pra from a practice that the Corinthians must have known about. Apparently there was a practice in Corinth whereby a person would be baptized on behalf of the dead. Now, to be sure, baptism is not a strictly Christian practice, and history shows us that baptism is, was also used in pagan cults. <clears throat> This passage doesn't say whether baptism on behalf of the dead was a church practice or a pagan practice. But the, but the fact that Paul references this practice likely means that his readers were familiar with it. And given that this was a fledgling church, 
And as Paul said in verse uh, 34, some have no knowledge of God. It's unlikely that this young, immature church would have developed that kind of a theology or practice. It is most probably uh, probable that this was a common practice in the wider Corinthian community. So, baptism on behalf of the dead. What is important here is not the practice itself. Paul is not teaching this practice, and he's not affirming this practice. What this ritual shows us is that people who did practice baptism on behalf of the dead must have assumed that there was a resurrection. You wouldn't baptize a person, a living person, on behalf of a dead person if you didn't think that there'd be some benefit to the dead person. And this practice only makes sense if there's a resurrection. Doing something for the benefit of those who have died assumes that there is a resurrection. So that's the second argument. The third argument for the resurrection, in verses 30 to 32, is one from experience. Why are Paul and other believers in danger? Why, as Paul says, is his life on the line every hour? I suggest to you that they are in danger because the resurrection is true. If the resurrection were false, there would be no gospel message to accept or reject and no messenger to hate. Paul and his fellow apostles were in danger because the gospel is true. The resurrection demands a response of the heart and of the mind. It requires us to acknowledge our true nature, our true condition, and to acknowledge as Lord the only one who can save people from their sin. The resurrection of Jesus requires confession of sin, turning from sin, and a devotion to a new master. It cuts at the heart of human pride because we have to admit that we were wrong. Those who reject that message hate it, and they hate the messengers that bring it. That is evidence of the resurrection. These verses are also a reminder not to listen to the voices around us that speak lies. In particular, the lie that there is no resurrection from the dead. Are there not plenty of those voices in this world? There are even those who call themselves Christian who believe that the unrighteous are simply annihilated at death because they don't believe that God is actually just. How long will it be before they deny the resurrection altogether? Don't listen to those voices. Wake up from the drunken stupor of foolish thinking. The plea here is to anchor ourselves in truth and to stop sinning. The fourth argument for the resurrection is the resurrection body. Paul does this by answering questions about the resurrection that he either imagined someone to ask or they could have been questions that somebody actually asked him at some point. He takes his answers from the laws of nature that God has built into creation. So let's read a few verses here at verse 35. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. <clears throat> the patterns of life and death and reproduction were established at creation. Paul begins his answers to those two questions in verse 35 by stating a principle. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When it comes to plant life, that is not a difficult thing to understand. 
Any of us who have done any amount of farming or gardening know what Paul's talking about. He adds to that by saying that, that what is sown is not the body that is to be. <clears throat> and again, we can grasp that because we know that the plant the seed produces is considerably more than the seed that was sown to produce the plant. Uh, mustard seed looks quite a bit different than a mustard plant. Same with anything we plant. Paul then echoes a principle from Genesis to reinforce. And he says, God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. In other words, wheat kernels will always produce wheat. Dogs will always have puppies. Thistles will never produce butterflies. Sparrows will never give birth to blueberries. <laughs> and the grapevine will not produce piglets. This is an unbroken pattern throughout creation from the day of creation until now. Paul's conclusion in verse 42 is this. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. And he explains what is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. What is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, and it is raised a spiritual body. Aha, the light is starting to go on. The change from seed to plant is much more enhanced when it is applied to people. Could it be that Paul is saying that our natural, when our natural bodies die, that we receive the heavenly body that is so much more than our earthly body ever was? Paul goes on, verse 45. Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last man, Adam, meaning Christ, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. Okay, so our natural bodies are the seed of the heavenly bodies we are to receive. That's what I think I'm reading here. Verse 47, The first man was from earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. The fourth argument for the resurrection is based on a law of nature, a principle that the seed must die to give way to the plant. The principle, sorry, this principle is taking place right now all across the prairies. And if this principle transfers from plants to people, as verse 42 says, then the evidence that a resurrection awaits us is that we now live in our natural bodies, which when they die will give way to our spiritual bodies. And so we will have bodies like the last Adam, Jesus, the life-giving Spirit. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. So, a quick review. Paul has argued as proof of the resurrection these things. First fruits, which imply a further harvest. Rituals, which assume a resurrection, meaning that other people already accept that fact. Persecution of the saints as evidence that the resurrection is true. And the principles of sowing and planting. Now, if by this point you are not convinced of the resurrection of Jesus and the future resurrection of the saints, Paul has one more argument to make. Let's read at verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, 
Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. By the way, the the word change here is defined in one dictionary like this. To cause a difference by altering the character or nature of something. So we will experience a life-altering change that will not reverse. Carrying on, verse 53. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to, to pass the saying that is written, Death, where, sorry, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. By the way, do you know what that means? (laughs) If you have sinned, you've been stung by death. And without intervention, you will die from it. But how is the law the power of sin? Because sin makes you a lawbreaker, and the law leaves you condemned. The law is the power of death over you because the law cannot save you, and you are therefore bound and powerless to escape death on your own. But, there's a but again, love that. But, thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because Jesus rose from the dead, because the resurrection of Jesus is certain, and because the resurrection of believers is certain, we have the assurance of escape from sin and death. Hallelujah. So after this whole extended argument to convince the doubting Corinthians that the resurrection is an undeniable fact, Paul says, therefore. In other words, because of the fact of the resurrection, because of the fact that Christ is risen, because of the fact that Christ is the first fruits of the harvest, because of the fact that we will be changed from mortal to immortal, because of the fact that death is defeated, therefore, My beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. That's a lot of stuff we just went through. And I hope you're able to catch at least part of it. But how do we apply that now to Living. Yes, we believe the right thing. How do we apply what we've heard? And given all that is true about the resurrection, I think this last verse is Paul's application for us. First of all, be steadfast and immovable. What does that mean? It means being well anchored in biblical truth, especially the resurrection, that you will not be swayed from it. And so there's a challenge to us to get into the Word, to know the Word, and to be convinced of what is true. Number two, always abound in the work of the Lord. And what does that mean? I think it means that being Christian is our way of life. It's how we think, it's how we speak, it's how we live. We always love, we always forgive, we always pursue peace. We always walk with integrity. We always build each other up. And we share the gospel when we have opportunity. It's the way we live. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. And number three, knowing that your labor is not in vain. 
We abound in the work of the Lord with the knowledge that there's a reward coming for those who labor in the, for the kingdom. Paul wrote to the Colossians these words, Whatever you do, work heartily, as for the Lord, and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance, your inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, reading and understanding Paul is sometimes heavy and difficult. But I pray that as we reread these words, as we uh, reread this chapter and, and think on these words, I pray, Father, that you would make it clearer and clearer to us how how undeniable the resurrection of Jesus is and how critical it is for our faith and how that empowers us to be steadfast and immovable, abounding in the work of the Lord, waiting for that reward. Father, as we part from here today, I ask for your blessing on this body, that you would strengthen us in knowledge and equip us with courage to do exactly these things. Thank you that you love us. We worship you in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. benediction from Hebrews and then also the blessing from Numbers. Now may the God of peace who brought back again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And this blessing 
The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Thank you for joining us.